Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Sarah Milstein and Eric Reese. Everybody, welcome, welcome. Hope you all um, had a good time meeting each other during the break. Thank you for making it back on time. As you may have noticed, we're really hardcore about starting on time here. Um, so a couple quick housekeeping notes at the top here. Um, first off, on the Wi-Fi, we have heard it's a little slow. And so we are asking two things. One, please limit yourself to one device. Eric and I are jointly on about 11 devices right now. So we have made a commitment to dial it back. Um, and also, if you happen to be watching the live stream here, we think a few people are, we're going to ask you to cut that down, because that really slows it down for everybody. Um, all right, so that's you use your eyes. Yeah, just watch. You don't mind. Um, so that's it on housekeeping. But we did want to mention one thing you might have noticed about this conference, which is that the program is a little different from most entrepreneurship conferences. We don't have demos and pitches. And we have a lot of speakers that you have probably never heard from before or never even heard of. And that's by design. We really go out of our way to find people who are working in different sectors, in different roles, in different places, who have amazing lean startup stories and advice to share that you couldn't find anywhere else except by coming here. So we have got a very broad pool of speakers, very unusual. And we used a very particular process to find those people. We're going to be talking about that a little bit in a session this afternoon, right after lunch, about making merit-based decisions. So if you're curious about how we did it and you want to learn more, um, the two of us will be in that session along with four other folks we are thrilled to meet with. So please join us then. All right. OK, so on that theme, uh, first you'll have noticed this is our first year conducting this experiment of going multi-track with breakouts so you have choices to make. So. Uh, one thing we've noticed is people sometimes choose the breakout based on the most famous name that they recognize, which you can do if you want. But we want to really uh, have you consider the possibility that some of the less famous folks may have something uh, valuable to say. And in fact, our next speaker, for those of you who have been in the Lean Startup community for a while, actually is quite famous. But outside of that select group uh, is not as well known. He may be the speaker who has traveled the furthest to be here all the way from Beijing. And uh, he was one of the earliest of early Lean Startup adopters, hosting a very memorable um, uh, Eric Reese versus Dave McClure session in Washington, D.C., which you can find online. Uh, but uh, maybe it's overbilled a little bit. In any event, he has now been preaching the good word uh, all the way in China and wanted to talk about what he has learned taking these ideas out of the U.S., out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and so please join us in welcoming Kevin DeWalt. Clicker. Yeah, thanks. So. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so in the last 10 years, every single one of you in the world has seen a slide that looks like this, right? And it talks about how the markets in Asia are growing so fast, they're going to be in the biggest in the world. And if you all had the same reaction that I've had, and that is, you know, so what, right? Why do I care? Shift happens, big deal. My startups in America, what does it matter what happens in Asia? And actually, this is a really rational reaction, because for the past 40 years of technology companies, we've had a really rational strategy for growing our businesses. And that is, start first in America, and then take that position of strength, and expand globally, and win the rest of the world. So my question for you is this. What does the world look like when the US is no longer the biggest market? What does that mean for your startup, for your company? Well, it turns out uh, the future is going to be uh, a little terrifying for a lot of you, as I'm going to explain today, but a lot more exciting for more of you. So I'm going to illustrate my points with a case study. 
So most of you have probably heard of a company called WhatsApp. Uh, it's a chat app you can get on your iPhone, your Android device, growing very fast, um, been around about five years, now one of the most valuable properties in the web. What you probably don't realize is that their primary competitor is a Chinese company called WeChat. Uh, WeChat started about two years after WhatsApp, but because they're starting in a bigger, faster growing market, they were able to close the gap very quickly. What they did next was really interesting. They decided to take the growth they were getting in Asia and aggressively expand, over, expand overseas. And in, the in five months this year, they added 100 million subscribers outside their core market. Now, 100 million, that's half the size of Twitter in five months. And they did it not by just creating a Spanish version of their application or an English version and throwing it up in the App Store. They did it by signing global partnerships with companies like Starbucks and Nike and getting top-tier celebrities to get their endorsements out. Now, I hope every single one of you can look at this chart and see the point that I'm trying to make. They're doing exactly what we have done in the West here for the past 40 years. And that is, except now they are the biggest market. And they're getting traction there, and they're taking that traction, that strength, and aggressively expanding overseas and trying to knock out local competitors in places like the United States. Now, <laughs> this isn't a story of gloom and doom. I don't want all you to think, oh my god, I've got to give up on entrepreneurship here because this Chinese company is going to come in and crush me. Because um, what WhatsApp, the American company, did in response is really interesting. They could have decided to hunker down in the United States and get protectionistic and defend their turf, but they didn't do that. Instead, they themselves decided to ex aggressively expand overseas into Southeast Asia. And it's very clear if you look at their execution that they didn't just decide to like, launch into these markets willy-nilly. They actually did their customer development and they built products specifically for these markets. They knew what they were doing. And a lot of analysts speculate that's why they are now growing so quickly. So in summary, why should you care about Asia? Because I'm telling you, you risk getting crushed, even here in America, uh, by companies that are coming from faster-growing uh, markets in the world. Alternatively, you can take my advice today, and you can try to build a bigger, faster, stronger-growing company than you ever thought possible. Um, so just to recap, you came in here five minutes earlier before I started talking. You had a plan. I'm going to grow my company in America. Then I'm going to expand overseas. Uh, turns out that's probably not going to work because America is no longer going to be the biggest market. Great news, though. I've got a better plan for you. And that is I'm going to show you how you can actually take advantage of this tr trend and expand into these markets sooner than you probably thought possible. OK, so you're probably wondering at this point, uh, well, this is all great, Kevin, but I don't know anyone in China or Thailand or Vietnam. Uh, how am I going to expand my company overseas to these markets? Well, it turns out that everything you're learning here is exactly what you're going to need to know to do this. Lean Startup is all about identifying uh, opportunities in markets and taking advantage of those, and that's what you're learning at this conference. And although with the, the strategies are the same, the actual tactics themselves are a bit different, and I'm going to talk more about that today. Um, so, if you're an entrepreneur like me, um, at this point of the, the presentation, you're wondering to yourself, uh, great, Kevin, thanks. You're just giving me one more thing to worry about, right? You know, in addition to raising money and building my product and you know, talking to customers, now I've got to go and worry about this, this big threat coming from overseas, right? Um, let me put your mind at ease and tell you when you have to start worrying about these things. If you are very early in your company's de development, you don't have to worry about any of this. You need to be doing your customer development, testing your ideas in the marketplace, trying to get the product market fit. On the other hand, if you're planning on waiting uh, three months before your IPO, before you expand overseas, 
it's too late, you're going to get crushed. The optimal time is right around the point when you start hitting product market fit. And when that point happens, that's when you want to go to your investors, your board, your founders, your advisors, and decide where is your growth going to come from. And at that point, you may decide, you know what, guys? Indonesia, that's where we're going to go next. We're going to take our company to Indonesia. Um, the, when you make that decision, the first thing I want you to do is assume you know nothing about whatever market is you're trying to go into. It saddens me to say that in 2013, we have uh, mostly Americans because we're the worst at this. Uh, we have American companies going overseas and getting crushed in these markets because they assume they know what the customers want. Uh, instead, what I would like you to do is actually go out and get help. Before you start doing lean startup or trying to do these tactics in a new market where you're not familiar, find people in those markets that can help you out. They're the people running the lean startup meetups, they're doing the next programs, they're the ones uh, doing the workshops, the accelerators. The, they're the ones that understand all these strategies and they want to help you grow their company. They're willing to work with you. If you get nothing else from my talk today, please take away this. And that's before you try to do lean startup in a market where you're not familiar, get local help from people who know these tactics and strategies and know these markets. Okay, so um, unfortunately, although we want to use these lean startup strategies around the world, what works in Silicon Valley doesn't work everywhere. And so I'm going to talk a little bit today about some of the specific tactics you can do that, that I've encountered in trying to work with companies in Asia. So uh, first one. You know, in the West, we kind of view ourselves as sort of as, as employees of companies. We kind of look at ourselves as ambassadors for identifying problems and trying to make the places where we work better. You know, we sort of view ourselves as agents of change. Um, so we talk very openly about problems here in Silicon Valley. Um, so the first time I was in, uh, in Asia and I worked with a team and I tried to get them doing customer development, I said, all right, guys, I want you to go out and I want you to find, uh, you know, 10 customers next week, I want you to talk to them about their problems and let's come back and hear what they said. And so the team went out and they worked hard for a week and they came back a week later and they said, uh, thanks a lot, Kevin, here's what we learned, right? Uh, we don't have any problems, right? <laughs> no problems here, you know, my division, we're all good. You know, did my boss send you? Like, why are you asking me about problems? Um, so it, it turns out in a lot of these cultures, you can't necessarily just, you know, kind of beat people over the head with this stuff and barge into their office the way we do in Silicon Valley. Instead, you've got to actually create a, you have to create a conversation with people. You need to go in and talk about trends and ideas and what's happening in, in, in the world. Talk to people about what their competitors are doing, uh, what's happening in industry, and create a dialogue. When you do that, people will start to open up to you, they'll start to trust you, uh, and that's when they'll start telling you about their problems and looking to you as someone that can provide solutions. Um, okay, so the second point is, is also a fun one. Um, you know, we here, you know, in the startup and the tech community, you know, we're great at this, uh, especially Americans. We like to use, you know, these acronyms. It drives our Europeans' friends crazy, right? The Americans, these freaking Americans with these stupid acronyms all over the place, right? But, you know, we, even more than that, we have a tendency when we use English to, to use English to describe very specific strategies that we use, okay? We take these strategies and we derive tactics from these specific strategies. The problem is that a lot of times, the words we use, the language, they don't always, always necessarily translate directly into other cultures. Um, and even, even if the words translate, sometimes they don't fit very well in other cultures. And so I'm going to give you a rather extreme example of this. Um, the first time I started work, or I did a workshop, I guess, about mm, four months ago, and I started talking to the teams about MVPs and asking about what they were doing about their MVP. And I got some blank stares, and I kind of stopped for a second and said, you know, MVP, we all know what that is, right? Uh, it turns out 
they thought I was talking about basketball. Um, so, um, you know, I, and it doesn't have to be this way. You know, instead of talking to people in, in, in strategic terms, instead of saying, okay, guys, you know, to avoid premature scaling, we're going to do our concierge MVP, we're going to pivot three times, and then we're going to, you know, hit product market fit, and all these terms that aren't going to mean anything, you can achieve the exact same results with your employees and partners by talking in terms of outcomes, using language like this. And you'll get to the exact same point, but you'll make it, um, you'll make it basically consumable for people. Okay, so the final tactic I'm going to mention um, is that here in, the, you know, in Silicon Valley, we have this, this notion that the best should win, right? You know, the best product, best team, best founders, those are the guys that deserve to win. That's what's fair, that's the, way, uh, that's the way product should work. You know, it turns out in a lot of the world, that's not necessarily true, and that relationships are more valuable than whatever intrinsic value your product brings. And so you find, uh, you know, when you, when you start working in Asia, you find like, a lot of like, people trying to tell you, like, here's how you build Guanxi in China, and here's how you build relationships, and we're, you know, our, our company's going to help make introductions. I found like, none of this stuff to be that helpful. But works, what works really well is actually being not another like, foreign company that comes into these markets and tries to take something out, but being somebody that gives something back. I mean, here's a shot of me doing a workshop in Manila at Startup Weekend a couple of months ago. Um, when you become the person that goes into these markets and tries to teach and help people and share, that's when people recognize that you're somebody value, when you're somebody giving back. And when you do that, you become the person worth knowing, and people will, will bring relationships and value to you. Um, so let me, let me just go ahead and wrap up um, by saying that um, yeah, the, the App Store, it has, no bound, it has no borders, right? There are no borders on the App Store. Um, and the rise of these markets in Asia are going to be the single biggest change that has ever hit Western capitalism. It's going to change everything about the way you work and about your startup in ways that we're just now beginning to understand in 2013. As these changes happen, every single one of you, every one of you is going to have a choice. And that is, you can choose to be scared by these changes, and defensive, and fearful, and hunker down, and protectionistic, and oh my god, we got the barbarians at the gate trying to steal market share away from me. Or, you can choose to take advantage of them, and try to take some of the advice I'm giving you here today, and to build a bigger, better, stronger company, by leveraging what's happening in these markets. The wonderful news for all of you here, is that simply by being a part of the Lean Startup Movement and learning these strategies, you are going to be in a better position than 99% of the world to take advantage of them. You are going to be the ones that have the opportunity to profit from these big changes that are happening. I hope you take advantage of it. Please enjoy the conference. Thank you so much. All right. Kevin, thank you for getting us off on the right foot here. So next up, we have Catherine Bracey, who works with Code for America, um, an organization close to our hearts here. Um, and she has an interesting story about having start started a startup within a startup. Um, Code for America is itself a young organization, and um, doing some new work made them rethink a lot of how they're behaving all around. Um, I think we have a lot to learn from her. Please welcome Catherine. Okay, yeah, I'm going to talk about um, a decision we made at Code for America to build an international program. 
um, and the effect that that had on the organization. Um, actually, a decision I'm feeling a lot smarter about after hearing Kevin's talk, so I'm really excited about that. Um, first, you need to know what Code for America is. Uh, an alarming number of you think that we teach people how to code, which um, I am here. To, I, sh I guess I should make clear. What we actually do is help governments make better use of uh, technology and design in order that governments can be more effective and engaging. Um, and our main program is a fellowship program where we take uh, technology professionals, uh, we get them to take a year off from their lives in order to do public service. And they work in collaboration with city officials on specific problems like um, overcrowded jails or food justice. Um, and through that engagement with those city partners, we've gotten government officials to realize uh, the value of networked organizing and digital technology and not just finding efficiencies, but in um, doing service delivery better and in re-engaging citizens in the democratic process. And we were so successful at this, in fact, that we started getting a lot of requests from people in other countries for us to help them start Code 4 programs where they were. And we really were not in a position to say yes. We, we barely knew what worked in the states, and um, we didn't feel like we could go and tell people in a different political context how they should set up their programs. Uh, eventually, it got to the point where we were getting so many incoming requests that we just couldn't, we couldn't say no anymore. Um, and so, and we realized that these programs were going to start whether we were a part of it or not. And we knew that if, um, if everyone was doing this work in a disconnected way, all of our work would suffer for it, including Code for Americas. Um, and so that's how Code for All was born earlier this year, in February, in fact. Um, and Code for All is a network of individuals and organizations who are bringing open source technology and lean principles and agile development, user-centered design, to governments around the world in order to rebuild trust in government and, and re-energize democracy and, and hopefully get to better outcomes. And it's a program that's loosely modeled on Teach for America's international program, Teach for All. But Teach for America was around for about 16 years before they decided to start an international program. So they had a much clearer picture of how their partners should operate and the model that they should follow. And like I said, we were still really figuring out what worked in the States, so um, we didn't feel like we could go and just tell people how to do it. So we knew from the beginning that we had to be very experimental. And so the first thing we had to do was figure out where we were going to work. With these limited resources that we had, um, we had to sort through these dozens of incoming requests and decide what was the set of three, which is really all we had the resources to partner with, what were the set of three places that we wanted to work in order to learn as much as we could about how this model translates? And so we settled on three fabulous partners. Um, we have, the first one is in the Caribbean, which is a uh, federal model. They work at the federal level with um, starting with a pilot in the agriculture ministry in Jamaica with plans to extend to other countries in the region in future cycles, um, and working in a place like Jamaica also gives us a chance to understand how this model works in the developing world, and which is really important for us. The second is Mexico City, which is probably the opposite end of the uh, spectrum in terms of scale. We're only working with one city, but uh, at 25 million people, it's the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere. It's bigger than two-thirds of the countries on the planet, and so obviously a, a huge opportunity and a daunting challenge to figure out how civic innovation can work in a city of that size. 
And for us, it's really exciting because many of us believe that cities are the place where we're going to tackle many of our global challenges over the coming century. And so being able to see this stuff work in a city the size of Mexico City was really exciting for us. Um, and so we're partnering there with the new mayor's uh, city uh, lab for the city, which is a department of city government there. And then the third one is Germany, which is, uh, most resembles the U.S. model of having multiple cities in one country, having teams of fellows in multiple cities. So in many ways, it's the control group. Um, and so we launched in May with this group of fabulous partners and almost immediately uh, started learning things that would lead us towards a pivot. And the first thing we learned was that the fellowship program doesn't really scale that well. So we started with the fellowship at Code for America, and, and um, our partners knew us for the fellowship program, so we just assumed that that was the program we should start helping people learn how to do. Uh, it turns out that there are very few countries in the world that have all the elements you need to make a fellowship program successful. So you need um, philanthropic dollars, you need um, government funding, you need cities to actually be on board with the idea of technologists coming into City Hall and tinkering around with what they're doing. And you need a pool of talent that's open to doing public service. Um, and it turns out that um, those elements are hard to bring together in that many places. And we also learned from this that the context in which Code for America launched was the time and place was actually very unique and led um, a lot to maybe some of our early success. So it was early 2009, and we were in the midst of the Great Recession where cities, as you all know, were devastated, their budgets were ripped apart, and they were desperate for any new solution they could find to meet their growing demands for public service. It was also right after President Obama was elected for the first time, um, and there was this kind of rejuvenation of, of hope uh, on the part of people in the technology and design world for the promise that their skill set might bring to government. So that combination of hope on the part of the technologists and sense of impending doom on the part of cities was, um, turns out, a pretty unique set of circumstances in which to launch and is very hard to replicate. So that was the first thing we learned. The second was that we were probably going about the process of building this network the wrong way. We put in, we, as we were developing how to build out this, this network, we were putting most of our resources into the bottom of the funnel. And I'll be honest and say, I didn't spend that much time thinking about how we could really service the top of the funnel, how we could get people who were interested but not already in the network to be more engaged and support the work that they were doing. And the moment, that this really occurred to me was uh, in about six weeks after we launched, uh, in the, at the end of June, our partners all came to San Francisco for, this is us, actually it was not that sunny out that day, it was actually really foggy, but, um, but we, had, we had fun. Uh, so, but they came for what we had called a training, but really ended up being more of a brain dump. And during those exchanges where you know, we were, of course, imparting our wisdom and our lessons of how we had run our programs to them, we were also learning so much through the process of exchange about the decisions that we made. Um, we had to articulate what we had done in a way that we never had to do before. It cost us to question every decision we had made, every way we had structured all of our different programs, really do an assessment of why our programs worked the way we did and what, and what path we were really building 
for ourselves as an organization. And it occurred to, it occurred to me that the value of this should be made as public as possible so that anyone anywhere in the world could start a civic hacking project and be connected to a community of people who were doing similar work that could support them. So that was really the pivot. It was to decide that we were going to go as public as possible to create an open system out of a closed system and really to create a platform that would allow civic hacking to grow up anywhere in the world. And so while we still support our fellows, our partners that are running fellowship programs, we have put a lot more of our resources into Code for America's citizen volunteer program, which is called the Brigade, and it's really a grassroots, local, volunteer-driven um, network of chapters that works with local governments on civic hacking projects. And in September, we opened this network to international partners, as you can see here on the map. We have 31 active chapters in the U.S., um, which in 2014 will probably go, grow by a couple dozen. And then uh, chapters in Japan and Ireland and Poland that are running the brigade internationally, and we hope to add many more international chapters uh, in 2014 as well. So that's where we are right now. Uh, we, we are clearly very much at the beginning of building out this network, and we, we are looking forward to learning so much more about how this program works internationally. But for now, I have two takeaways. Uh, the first is that open is always better than closed. Our programs, both Code for All and Code for America, are going to be so much stronger because of the fact that we decided to go open instead of closed. And the second is that experimentation is almost always a good thing. There were uh, many skeptics about why, at, at, and many of them sat inside the building at Code for America, why we would decide to extend ourselves in this way, to spread ourselves so thin when we were still building the foundation for our own organization. And the answer, it turns out, is that this is exactly the right time to be doing that kind of work, to question your assumptions, to really clean out your attic and put all of your stuff in order while you still have time to incorporate those learnings into the way that you're building your program. So I'm going to end there, but I wouldn't be a good community organizer if I didn't have a hard ask for you guys. So I want to ask you to come join us in this work. As I said, there are 31 chapters of the brigade in the U.S. with dozens more coming online in 2014. We're out in the U.S. If you want to get involved in an existing brigade or to start one where you live, if there isn't one where you live, you can go to brigade.codeforamerica.org, and all we need is your name, and where you live, and we can give you all the tools you need to start building better government. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome, thank you. I'm a big Code for America fan, uh, which is why I sit on their board, so I appreciate your support. Uh, now, some of you uh, probably caught when I said earlier that uh, lean manufacturing, which is the basis for lean startup, comes from something called the Toyota production system from Japan. It's very interesting to see Kevin's presentation about uh, taking lean startup back to Asia when, in fact, uh, as you'll hear tomorrow, the history, real history of how lean first came to the United States is a very interesting story in and of itself. That's all my roundabout way of saying that I was a little bit nervous when I got an email from Toyota uh, not that long ago, and I was like, uh oh, I'm, I'm probably in trouble. Because, you know, I have been talking a lot about how we are taking principles from Toyota to, to encourage people like you to build organizations that are learning organizations that have Toyota's philosophy of long-term thinking that I talked about earlier, uh, really embodying those values. Now, at the time, absolutely everything I knew about Toyota I had read in books, which is a violation of the Toyota principle of Genshi Genbutsu, or go and see for yourself. 
uh, or as we like to say, get out of the building. Uh, so I was very nervous to get this email, but actually, uh, and it was from one of the speakers you're about to hear from, it was the beginning of a dialogue that has been really interesting to me and really opportunity for me to see those principles and values lived up close. Uh, and I am uh, proud to report that the people I have had a chance to work with at Toyota are as open-minded, as commitment to, committed to learning, and really the most non-defensive of any company I have ever worked with. Uh, so it's been really a privilege and an honor to work uh, with these next two presenters, Matt Cressy and Vinuth Rai. Thanks for the intro, Eric. Um, very excited to be out here talking to uh, the Lean Startup community. Uh, Matt and I with the Toyota Info Technology Center. Uh, we're a research and development arm for Toyota Motor Corporation, and we're basically building a connected car. Um, we have about 40 people down in Mountain View working on uh, wireless networking, EVs, robotics, and uh, other technologies that will improve the automotive experience. So why are we talking about Lean Startup? Why is Toyota trying to learn Lean Startup? Uh, Vinuth and I actually attended this conference last year. And whenever we would talk with people, uh, they kept saying something to the extent of, uh, why are you guys here? Like, what do you have to learn? Like, aren't you guys pros at this already? Uh, and the truth is no. Like, uh, while it's true that uh, many of the principles uh, that formed the basis of Lean Startup uh, were based on the Toyota production system, as, as Eric mentioned. Uh, when it comes to our consumer-facing software development, uh, the stuff that we work on, such as navigation and uh, multimedia, we're still very much stuck in the traditional waterfall model. So we have a lot to learn. Uh, but we think that this is probably the case for most mature industries making software, especially those that are primarily concerned with safety and reliability. They have to go through a very rigorous process before they can release stuff. Nevertheless, uh, our customers have come to expect that the user experience, especially for software, is going to update to match uh, their changing expectations the same way that consumer electronics and web service companies do. Uh, but you would probably be surprised to learn that right now, uh, between the old and new system pictured above, it takes about three years to get this out the door. Um, but even worse than this is the fact that we're not really getting uh, customer feedback uh, from our drivers on the road until after we're launching the product. So effectively, uh, our cycle time through Build, Measure, Learn is also three years. Uh, this is a big concern for us. Uh, Vinuth and I, and as well as the rest of our team, feel that if we can do customer development, incorporating this feedback throughout the development process, we're going to come up with a much better product. And this is what led us initially to Lean Startup. So it was um, Matt who read Eric's book first. He tells me about it. I, I read too. And we're like, yes, this is awesome. We should do Lean Startup, and it'll solve all our problems. So uh, we, uh, we go out, and we uh, convince upper management that, you know, uh, don't change everything, but let's run Lean Startup in a small scale at our, at our center, and we'll see what kind of gains we can get out of this. So the book says, make an MVP. So we made an MVP. Um, Making a navigation system, making a head unit, is not a trivial task. It takes time, it takes resources. Uh, we didn't have this. So what we did is we uh, took an Android tablet and um, stuck an Arduino board behind it, uh, wired it into the ignition and the steering wheel controls, packaged it in with a Toyota faceplate, and stuck it in a car, and that was our MVP. 
Um, it didn't have a lot of the stuff that a typical uh, navigation system would have. It didn't have AM, FM radio. It didn't have Bluetooth calling. didn't have a rear view camera. But that was fine. Uh, these were not the things that we were looking to improve. What we wanted to do was make a platform that helped us learn about customers and how they use mobile services in the car. So in addition to developing an MVP, we also had to find customers. Uh, and as an R&D group, we had never really interacted with direct customers. So uh, this was a new thing for us. Uh, we put up a Craigslist ad, uh, actually at the advice of Eric, to, to just invite people to come into our office to talk with us. And, and we were overwhelmed uh, by the fact that 300 people responded, that they were interested in, in to com coming in and, and basically complaining about their driving experience. So, <laughs> so we filtered down based on, on the mass list of responses to about 30 people. And uh, we, we interviewed them one by one. And we got a really great sense of what the actual problems were in the car. And then we fed that basically in uh, to the development of the MVP, which was happening at the same time. From those 30 people, we identified five people that we could directly put our MVP into their existing vehicle. And by the end of the month, our trial was live. So like Matt said, we were an R&D organization, or are an R&D organization, and um, we couldn't sell directly to customers. So what we uh, told these guys was that uh, we put, your, put our system in your car. You can use it for a month. Uh, at the end of the month, we'll give you a choice. Uh, if you like it, keep using it. If you don't, here's 100 bucks. We'll take it off your hands. Uh, we felt 100 bucks was a good uh, proxy metric to help us uh, validate our value hypothesis and growth hypothesis. So fast forward a month, uh, we run our trial, we, we uh, give updates, we learn from them, we do all these things, and then we ask them, do you want to stay or leave? Uh, we have about 60% retention, 40% um, of those want to refer it to someone else. We feel pretty good about this. You know, we have, we have uh, done the process, we read the book, uh, we, uh, we feel good. And um, we said, we want, to we want to talk to upper management about this. We want to tell them that this is working. So we make and make, uh, go ahead and make the presentation, and their response was, so what? Um, <laughs> Toyota sells cars pretty well. You know, so the concept of retention and referral didn't make too much sense to them. They were like, why does this matter for us? Uh, the second issue was um, uh, they didn't understand um, why uh, or how this could connect to the mainstream product development process. So this is something that uh, took us back, and we had to sit, sit, step back and reflect. Uh, going, going into this, our expectation was build an MVP, establish a customer base, and then Toyota tells everybody, do lean startup. <laughs> right? So that didn't happen. So, uh so we got very clear feedback that our metrics about a specific component were not important. They care about the whole car, but they were really interested in the ways that we had proved that, uh, I'm sorry, that we have improved the user experience of the individual features of our Navi and multimedia system. So uh, they put it on us to basically figure out how we could connect these learnings from our customers uh, into the mainstream product groups, as well as the process we were using by which to derive these learnings. So. Uh, we're going to outline like the couple steps in reflection that we went through in order to do this. Needless to say, Toyota is a big company. You know, we have product groups everywhere. Um, in North America, we have groups in Detroit and Los Angeles. So we wanted to get our colleagues in, um, uh, in these offices engaged and part of our development process, where we were co-creating with customers. So what we did is we identified an event where these teams were getting together to benchmark competitor vehicles, and we told them, benchmark our system too. Uh, see how it stacks up against these units. And uh, we went down there. The team worked pretty hard. They polished the system. And we uh, uh, got everyone excited about the possibility of a customer-centric development process that everyone agreed could improve the product moving forward. 
So what came out of this meeting was that uh, a small working group was set up with these three offices, and we decided to run experiments together. So we sent our test cars out to uh, these two offices so that our colleague could experience what we had built and run experiments in parallel. So we had gotten them engaged. Uh, the next thing we had to figure out was basically what was a natural starting point. As Vinuth mentioned, we had never worked together, so this was a very new process for us. What we ended up doing was convening the LA and the Michigan groups at our office here in Mountain View. Uh, and we just started off with an open discussion about what we wanted the product vision to be. Uh, from this discussion, it resolved down to about 40 plus uh, feature improvements or assumptions about ways that we could improve the features. Uh, we took each one of those, put them on an index card, and placed them on a whiteboard, and then went through a prioritization process uh, where the axes were high and low impact in terms of how much each feature improvement would improve the overall user experience, and then also how hard or easy it would be uh, for a developer to build or Im uh, improve this feature. Uh, we then segmented out uh, the top uh, right corner, I guess, of the highest impact and easiest to develop uh, features. And we made that our initial starting point of experiments that we would run all three groups together as a team. So uh, we had our feature list. We had a prioritized list. We had our team together. And now we had to make sure that we stayed on track. We were running our experiments, and we were learning. This was really the hardest part for us. Uh, we found ourselves often getting distracted. We fall in love with their ideas and always go back to bad habits and building what you know, felt good for us. Uh, what this meant was two things. One is we lose sight of the customer. We forget what's important for them. And uh, second and more deadly, I guess, is that we're not learning anymore. And if we're not learning, what we're doing is essentially waste. And I think that's uh, what we wanted to prevent from happening. So what we did is uh, we used a simple tool. I mean, Google Docs works superb for us. What we did is we just list up our experiments, make sure everyone's accounted for, we know who's doing what, and it helps us communicate very easily with a team in uh, different geographical locations. So this worked well for us. I mean, um, uh, and also it's boring, but it just has to be done. So uh, as Vinith mentioned, it's a very rigorous process. Uh, we update uh, the dashboard every single day. And going through this process of innovation accounting has actually forced us to be more creative uh, in the ways that we validate or learn things. So uh, previously, uh, or up to that point, rather, uh, our only way to validate experiments was to write code and to put it into the car and to have our customers ride around with it and then learn uh, based off that way. But it's very time consuming and, and resource intensive. So uh, we actually got a lot of great ideas from the Lean Startup community on uh, cheaper ways that we could get learnings. Uh, so we ended up um, mapping out each one of our experiments uh, to some of these techniques, uh, such as remote testing, clickable wireframes online, or doing Wizard of Oz testings, or just more advanced techniques with customer interviews. Uh, we ended up with a diverse mix, uh, with our criteria being what was the maximum amount of learning that we could get in the shortest amount of time. So eight months in, uh, we feel pretty good that we have uh, incorporated customer feedback into our process. Uh, we're engaged with product teams. We are constantly running experiments and feeding these learnings into the final product design. Uh, running Lean Startup at Toyota has not been easy. It's been quite challenging. But uh, we feel very confident that moving forward, the product's going to be vastly improved because we're incorporating customer feedback now as opposed to waiting till these cars hit the road. So we've been really happy to share our experiences uh, adopting Lean Startup thus far with you today. Uh, but we're looking to uh, connect even more with the community moving forward. So uh, if you see us in the hallways over the next couple of days, please come up and talk with us. Uh, you can reach out to us also at our Twitter handles up there or our website. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you.
I told you. I'm really excited. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited to introduce our next speaker. For those of us who are engineers by training, uh, especially in the software world, Kent Beck really needs no introduction. Uh, he has uh, been involved with some of the most important uh, movements in software development, including patterns and extreme programming. Uh, one of the founders of the Agile, science signers of the Agile Manifesto, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but he has also been uh, a very important part of my own journey, uh, both as an engineer and in Lean Startup. We were recounting earlier one of the very first webinars I ever did uh, about Lean Startup. Somebody was chatting on the webinar as Kent Beck. Uh, we all just assumed, I actually had to stop the webinar and be like, that's not the real Kent Beck, is it? And we were joking. I was like, oh, yeah, right. It's like Muhammad Ali's on the webinar. Very funny. But it was, in fact, him, and his, that was the beginning of a really productive dialogue. He was one of the very first speakers we had at the very first edition of this conference a few years later, a few years ago, and now a few years later, he finds himself coaching engineering at a tiny little company called Facebook. So if you would, welcome Kent Beck to the stage. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I'm told I have a triangle that I'm supposed to be in, so I'll uh, probably go to the edges of it just to drive the AV guy nuts. <laughs> Sorry about that. We all deal with nervousness in our own ways. So once upon a time, uh, there was a family, and they, uh, they moved out into the wilderness. We won't go into the backstory, but let's just assume this happened. So they moved out into the wilderness, and they built a little shelter. And they got there... They, they had their shelter built, and they had some place to sleep, but then they thought, how are we going to eat? And uh, just then, out of the woods appeared an old man, an old man with a banjo on his back and a, and a beard on his face, and he said, to eat, you have to hunt. And they said, well, well how do you hunt? He said, don't worry, I'll show you. So over the next few days, the old man taught the family how to make spears and snares and bows and arrows and said, this is, this is how you hunt. And they think, oh, great, fantastic, because they lived in such a fertile part of the world, it was easy to get all the food that they needed for a while. Over time, though, the hunting got harder and harder, and they noticed that they'd spend more of their day hunting there were some nights when there wasn't anything to eat. And in fact, they were starting to get a little slim and the belts were starting to tighten. And then, what do you do? And just then, the old man appeared out of the woods again and he said, in order to eat, you have to gather. They said, gather? What is this gather stuff you're talking about? He said, I'll show you. So over the next few days, the old man showed them which seeds of the grasses were easiest to uh, harvest, which plants on the ground you could dig up roots and eat from, how to clear out more of the forest so that there was more food to eat. And they said, oh, thank you very much. Now, now we're set. And they were for quite a while. In fact, they were so successful at gathering that they sort of forgot their hunting skills. And the the bows and the spears rotted away. And then came the day when there was a crop failure. The frost came, not unlike the frost we're having today, and, uh, and there, there were no roots to dig up and there were no seeds to gather. And again, they were starting to get hungry. And 
just in time, because this is a story, the old man came out of the woods with his banjo and said, ah, in order to eat, you have to hunt and gather. I thought, oh, okay. So they reminded themselves of their old hunting skills. They retained their skills at gathering food. And when the crops failed, they could still eat. When the hunting was bad, they had the food that they gathered. And uh, a few years later, things were going very well, but the old man came back one last time. And they said, they said to him, Now, <clears throat> when we first got here, and we just had a little hut in the middle of the woods, you told us that to eat we had to hunt. And he said, yes. Because if you'd, if you'd tried to do anything else, you didn't have time to, to lay out crops and so on. You had to eat now. He said, oh. But then later you told us that to eat we had to gather. And he said, well, yes. Because at that point, game was getting scarce. There wasn't as much to eat. And uh, it, you weren't going to be able to just hunt. And he said, huh. And then you came back the third time and you told us that in order to eat, we had to hunt and to gather. So what's that about? And he says, well, usually gathering works, but when it doesn't work, you have to be able to hunt as well. And they said, well, so are we hunters? Are we gatherers? Are we hunter-gatherers? He said, we're just going to leave that to the anthropologists to figure out. <laughs> and they said, the anthro-whats? And poof, the old man and his banjo disappeared in a cloud of purple smoke and were never seen again. What does this have to do with engineering? When I thought of the story, I asked myself the same question. Oftentimes, that's my process. Like, I'll just think of some crazy idea, and then I'll, whoa, that, that's a, that can't possibly be a good idea. But, you know, that's the best moment, right? Good ideas are worthless because somebody else has figured them out. It's bad ideas that turn out to be good ideas that are really cool. <laughs> Unfortunately, this means that you have to cultivate failure because most of the bad ideas are, in fact, bad ideas. <laughs> but if you just make a habit of saying, well, this is stupid, how quickly can I prove to myself that this is stupid, you, you get some real insights out of that. So, <clears throat> we all have, more or less, three billion seconds on the planet. And I hate wasting those seconds. As an engineer, and that's how I, I come to, to the lean startup community is as, as an engineer. I'm a builder. I like making things. I recognized 15, 20 years back, perhaps, that just making things is not enough. That there is this build, measure, learn cycle, and building for its own sake, while it's a lot of fun, is not a way to keep groceries on the table. So build, <clears throat> building as part of a build, measure, learn cycle, for me, that's my goal. Um, I wrote this book 
uh, uh, called extreme programming, and uh, uh, people have used that as a weapon, which I was kind of uh, sad about. But there's, once you publish the book, if somebody wants to use it to shim up a table or hit somebody, there's really nothing you can do about it at that point. <laughs> that text editor has not been invented yet. <clears throat> That's a weird idea, but I'll get back to that later when I'm done talking to you all. Okay, so, <clears throat> so here we have 3 billion seconds plus or minus on the planet. I hate wasting it. As I get older, I hate wasting it even more. But what I notice is uh, that uh, dogma sets in. And, uh, and this is a problem of success. The, the advantage that a complete and utter failure has is that they don't think that they know things that aren't true. As soon as you start being successful, you start believing things that aren't true because we're all really good at pattern matching. We all have these biases that says, well, you know, if I, if I put the yellow sock on first and then the blue, you know, I'm, then I meet interesting people when I mismatch socks. Well, that one may be true. But um, you, you make all these correlations, you think, well, I'm a programmer, so I program in this way, and then I was successful, so programming in this way caused my success. That's bad enough, but then you go around and start telling other people, well, you should program in this way too. That's pretty bad. But then when you start telling other people that they should program that way too, there's zero information value. By that time, it, it, it's all completely gone. And that's where the waste comes in. People think they have the way to program figured out, the way to contribute to these BMLs, and they don't realize that there are lots of, there's a lot of context to what it means to engineer to maximize learning. Sometimes that means that you, you do what would be considered proper engineering. Careful, thoughtful design moving in little tiny steps. Cleaning the code up as you go along, and sometimes that's the, that is, in fact, the way to maximize learning, but that's only one, th th there's a lot of context around that. It's not always the way to maximize learning. <clears throat> and so, that's what I'll be talking to, uh, to some of you about later this afternoon, assuming you weren't frightened off by the story and the guy with the banjo and stuff, is what that really means for engineering. What is this cycle? And it, it's a typical cycle. Just happens over and over again. Team gets together, they hack up some stuff really fast, they learn, they get successful, then the product starts to blow up, and there's this huge chaotic transition. And usually the, the success scenario is you, you hire a bunch of proper engineers at that point, uh, all of the, the hacker guys go someplace else, or girls, my apologies. I'm, I'm still learning about this, but uh, working on it. All of those, the, the, the original hackers leave, it's a huge, crazy time. Now you have proper engineers, things go along smoothly, 
and then you start losing customers to a competitor, to a change in conditions, and you've forgotten the skills that got you customers in the first place. That's a cycle. It plays out over and over and over again, and so that's what I want to that's what I'm going to be talking about this, this afternoon, is what's the cycle? How do you identify that you're in the cycle? What do you do to get out of it if you want to waste fewer of those few precious seconds that you have on the planet? So, um, I uh, invite some of you, but not all, because that would be terrible for the other speakers, to come and see me right here this afternoon to talk about how uh, engineering works inside of a, of a lean startup. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm gonna take the clicker from you. Thanks so much. All right, thank you, Kent. All right, I'm pretty psyched. The next speaker is my brother, which means I am not at risk for mispronouncing his name. Now, when one of our staff people noticed the other day that our, my brother was speaking, she asked, you know, you do this lean startup stuff, your brother writes and speaks about it. Is your family running on a bedrock of efficiency? No, no, we are not. Um, but my brother was one of our most popular speakers last year. He has some really important information to share, and we're very pleased to have him back. Please welcome Dan. Hello, everybody. My name is Dan, uh, and I work, uh, I run with two other guys in uh, a tiny little software consulting shop in Boston called Huddy Labs, uh, and we work with startups uh, in a bunch of different ways. And what I'm going to talk uh, about today is about what I consider the first principles uh, underlying the lean startup. And I want to do this because I think understanding these principles, understanding sort of what's going on under the surface, is a huge competitive advantage. Uh, it lets you apply these ideas, which are very powerful, very broadly to sort of different industries, different uh, stages of growth for a company, different types of companies. Um, but to do that, you need to understand why these ideas work and when they don't work, would be one way to say that. Um, and so before I get started, there's a sort of interlocking set of ideas I want to walk through. But I want to start with Eric Ries's definition of a startup. It's a human institution creating a new product or service under conditions of extreme uncertainty. Extreme uncertainty. Hold that in your head. OK, here we go. OK, the first concept I want to talk about is opportunity cost. To talk about this, uh, I, want to use, I want to tell a story about Huddy, my consulting company. Uh, and, and I want you to imagine that we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with our next month. Uh, and we've got two people who want to hire us. And they want to hire us to do uh, just kind of coding work, which we actually mostly don't do at this point, but imagine. And sort of client A, um, they have a bunch of Photoshop documents, and they want to turn those into HTML. You know, CSS, cut them up. And they're happy to pay the market rate for those, which is roughly $20 an hour. But there's good news which is they have like limitless numbers of these documents, and all three of us can get eight hours of work a day at this nice $20 an hour rate. OK, that's client A. Client B is big data. It's a dupe. It's HBase. It's very sexy. Uh, and for that, they pay the market rate, which is $200 an hour. right? But there's a catch. They only have four hours of work a day for all three of us, three of us if we're going to sort of go there. OK, so A, B. So the question is, what do we do? Right? Which one do we choose? Which of these clients do we work for? And I want you to imagine that one of my two partners, let's say my partner Matt, was to say, which he never would, like, guys, this is really easy. There's no problem here. We have to do the Photoshop work. And if Edmund and I were to say, well, why? He said, well, if we take the big data work, we're going to be sitting around for half the day not working. 
That's super inefficient. That's like a waste of our time. If we do that, it's going to look really bad if we do that, in fact. Um, whereas if we do the Photoshop work, we're going to be working really steadily and efficiently, and we'll make $160 a day. That's pretty solid, right? Okay. Is Matt right? No, he's totally insane, right? That's a terrible idea. Look at the math, right? We're going to make $800 a day per person with the big data work, and only $160 the other way. So in fact, Edmund and I would be perfectly justified in saying to Matt, we're not making $160 a day, we're losing $640 a day. That's the difference. We're giving up the opportunity to make the $800 in order to make the $160. And that's opportunity cost, okay, per person, right? And my first message is this is happening at your startup, like right now. People are choosing to work on stuff that's not that valuable, that's not the most valuable thing they could do, and it's costing your company a lot because they're giving up the opportunity to work on other stuff. Now, you might be thinking, OK, well, sure, but I doubt it's this huge difference, like this 20 to 200, because the stuff we're working on is pretty important, right? I mean, sure. Um, and so we can actually sort of answer that in an interesting way. OK. I want you to, so imagine a relatively typical startup, typical in some sense, raises a Series A, hires 10 people, and one year later goes back to raise a Series B. Um, and I want you to imagine there can be sort of two outcomes and how they're valued, what their valuation is, not how much they raise, but what their valuation is, what somebody who's willing to give them a big chunk of money thinks the overall company is worth. That's a really good proxy for how much their sort of value the individual actions are generating. Down one path, they worked on pretty valuable stuff, uh, and they're being valued at $20 million. Okay. Down the other path, things didn't go as well, and they're valued at $0, right? So one way you can look at this is that the people sort of did things. If you imagine, that's almost like the same startup that went down two different roads. The time it went down the road where they didn't make any money, one way to look at that is the opportunity cost is $8,000 a day per person because they were working on the wrong stuff, right? Also known as $8,000 a day, right? This like toy example, the $640 a day is nothing. And by the way, you're paying these people maybe $500 a day, just sort of back of an envelope. Um, so there's this tremendous cost to working on the wrong things. Now you might be thinking, um, if I were you, I would be thinking uh, about this example. Two things. Um, well, sort of one is, it's not, you know, well, there's a fair amount of luck involved, right? Well, that's true, but my sort of belief is it's not all luck. And one thing that's nice about this huge sort of $8,000 thing is, even if there's like a lot of luck, even if it's like half luck, it's still $4,000 a day because you're working on the wrong stuff. And the other axiom is a little trickier, which is it's mostly not about who works harder. And I have a f what I consider fairly strong evidence for that, which is who here has worked at a startup that failed? Anyone? Raise your hand. Did people like work hard at that startup? Yes. <laughs> Always. People work super hard at startups that fail. Um, and so at some level, what I'm saying is, if hard work and, and sort of luck are important, but they don't seem to really distinguish the ones that you know, succeed from the ones that fail, then the choices of what we're working on must be critical. That's actually your biggest lever, is what you choose to work on, and it has this huge differential effect. Um, and so one thing I'm saying is you should actually be terrified, like you should be very, very scared of working on the wrong things. I would say you should be so terrified that you actually don't work. Like if you're not sure that what you're working on is the most valuable thing to your startup, you should stop working. And I tell people this and they think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Like you should only work if what you're working on is the most valuable thing. Um, and you really shouldn't worry about working hard. Um, and especially what I mean by that is you shouldn't worry about looking like you're working hard. Um, and everyone gets this wrong, like, because human beings, when you get them into groups this way, and there's these conditions of extreme uncertainty, it's very hard for them not to work. They actually do the thing I described Mattis doing that we all sort of made fun of, which is if they sort of feel like if they're sitting still, they're going to get in trouble. <laughs> like, if they can't show their investors or their boss that they were doing something at all times, um, there's going to be a problem. 
So this is an opportunity for you is to sort of try to fix this. Okay, but there's a problem. Now we get to section two, which is information and money. In my little toy example, we knew if we do this thing, we're making $20 an hour. If we do this thing, we're making $200. Now, at a startup, like, no one tells you that, right? No one says, hey, you do this marketing campaign, it's worth $8,000 a day. You work on the back end of the database, that's worth $0 a day. You just, it's, you don't know what's worth what, right? So what do you do? But you should be afraid that you're working on the wrong things. Well, let's go back and go back to my toy example. And I want, to, I want to imagine, same setup. We have two potential clients, one with the Photoshop, one with the big data. But they won't tell us which is which. And this is like a funny setup. We know one is one and one is the other, but we don't know which is which. So what do we do? Well, we could work for one kind of at random. And half the time, we'd get the really good one. And half the time, we'd be losing the 640 a day. Sort of on average, we'd be losing 320 a day, actually. That's how it works. But what we should really do is we should spend a week researching. Like, let's say we can be sneaky and we can talk to friends who work at the company or find out which one is doing a design job and which one is doing a big data job. And imagine that at the end of one week, we know for certain which is which. Okay? So think about that. I want you to think is that week makes us money. Okay? It does, that information that we gathered, it's real money. <laughs> and I really want to emphasize this. So you can think about it. Like, before that week started, we were going to sort of randomly lose 640 about half the time. After the week's over, we're never, we know for certain which one we're getting. We're always going to make the more money. And therefore, that, that information, that yes or no, which one is the better one, is worth a lot of money to us. And in fact, it's actually useful to think about it. And it's super important not to think about it as, oh, we had to do this thing. We had to do this research. And only then could we start to make money. Think about that week as making you money because information in the sort of context when you have a decision to make is worth money. The same way that like a contract that you sign that you only get paid on when some later event happens is worth money. You don't consider that contract to be sort of some silly, you know, sort of rigmarole until you actually have the dollars in your bank account. You consider it as money as well. Okay. So now we get to the sort of next idea, which is risk and in information. Okay. So this is interesting. I've had this idea that there's information as value and you're making a decision. But startups never have a single decision, right? In fact, they have what I call chained risks. That a whole sequence of things has to be true. And if they're all true, some lovely event happens for you. Your startup is worth a lot of money, or you get lots of customers, whatever. But they kind of all have to be true. And sort of a classic, very simple one for essentially every startup is, can we build it? And if we can build it, will they buy it? which are often called sort of a, you know, technical risk and market risk. Um, and you know, what's interesting here is, well, what's the value of knowing the answer of one of these questions? Right before we had this sort of idea that, you know, or which question should we answer first? Whereas before, I was sort of talking about this sort of very simple yes-no. OK, well, to talk about that, about these sort of chains of risk, I want to talk about two different kinds of startups, or two Im imagined startups. Um, the first one, I want to imagine, is building a teleportation device. Uh, and you can imagine there's some guys at MIT, uh, and they have a lab, and quantum mechanics, and they can, they can take a, a, an entire molecule of salt and teleport it across their lab to the other side. And they're very excited by this, as they should be. Uh, and they come to you, and let's say you're sort of an investor or an early employee, and they say, if we can just spend a couple years researching, maybe three years, we're fully confident that we can teleport a human being very safely anywhere on Earth for $1,000. OK, that sounds great. That's startup A. Startup B is, is very different. It's just this enterprise CRUD app. Does anyone know what a CRUD app is? CRUD app is like the simplest, dumbest kind of app an engineer can make. Um, and uh, they, there's this very simple app that somebody, he, he has a doctor friend who works in hospitals, let's say, this health IT. Um, and he has this simple app that it will take maybe three, six months to build that he's convinced that hospitals will pay $10 million a year for. Okay. 
So these two startups um, both face the same question, which is what should they do first? They both have to sort of prove out whether or not they can build it, whether or not people will buy it. And the question I'm going to ask is, and you can see it here, is, well, what do you do first? What should they each do with their first month? And the answer for the teleportation one is really easy, right? They should try to build it. And in fact, if what in fact happened is, like the CEO of the teleportation thing came to you, the early investor, and they said, look, I've done the lean startup thing, and I built a really pretty brochure, and I printed it up, it's really nice, and I took it to a bunch of people, and I actually got them to pay me $1,000 for like when we're ready to do teleportation. Wasn't that awesome? You know, you'd be like, no, you're totally fired, right? Like, that's incredibly useless. Like, we, why, why would you possibly do that? Go back to the lab. Like, maybe see if you can teleport, like, two crystals of salt, you know? Or, like, a shaker or a rat or something, right? But what, who cares that you sold this thing? That's, like, totally stupid, right? Um, whereas at the CRUD app, it's the opposite, right? If the guy was like, well, we had this, like, crappy demo, but, man, it was crappy. So we spent a while building a really nice database, and that's all really good, and we're ready to scale it up. And, and you're like, well, have you, have you talked to any hospitals? You're just like, no, no, we haven't done that. You'd be like, you're fired, right? Like, that's a terrible, terrible idea. What are you doing? Go to the hospitals. And because $10 million, why are they going to pay it? So here's my question for you. What's different about these two stories, right? We have profoundly different intuitions about what we should do in these situations, intuitions which are correct about why we should do different stuff. But why? Why are these so different? The answer I'm going to give is what I'm going to call the degree of surprise. Okay? So when somebody finds out that a human being will pay $1,000 to be teleported to anyone on Earth, you actually kind of already knew that. You're not surprised. There's no surprise in that. Um, and, and correspondingly, when the person building the CRUD app has you know, got it partially built in a month, you're not particularly surprised by that. One way to say that is, with the teleportation thing, is essentially you already knew, mostly, you weren't totally certain, but you were almost certain that people would pay for it. So finding out that, yes, it's actually not very much information. Uh, and there's this idea that information is actually equal to surprise, this idea of surprise of what I'm talking about. Um, and there's actually a sort of uh, a very nice um, mathematical theory behind this by Claude Shannon. Um, if, if you like math, information theory is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but the key idea is that we only get information when there's uncertainty and risk. So basically, the, one way to look at that is you can only be surprised when, when there could be something you don't know. Right? If you largely know something, there's no surprise, there's no information. Now, looking back to what I was saying a moment ago, I was talking about the value of information in the context of decision. Like, you can put a dollar figure on how much information is worth. What I'm talking about now is actually the amount of information. And those are actually not, those are sort of orthogonal, which is kind of cool, actually. Um, which is basically, you, you actually don't get much information when you already knew something. You get a lot when you're uncertain. And then sort of which information is valuable depends on what your decision you're making. So those things are sort of related. Now, I want to sort of switch to Steve Blank's definition of a startup for a second here. A startup is a temporary organization formed to search, search for a repeatable and scalable business model. So one way to understand that is that when I describe that sort of little toy story about HUD-8, where we did a week of research and then a month of actually getting paid for something, a startup is just that week, right? A startup is a startup because it's an information-gathering entity. That's sort of what makes it a startup. Um, and part of the reason I want everyone to understand these principles, rather than just sort of the tactics and the specifics of what you do is, is that all, this, this, this is entirely true, but unfortunately, there's not like one day that you wake up and you're no longer a startup, and now you have a repeatable and scalable business model, and you just execute. It doesn't work that way at all. It's like you gradually get sort of more and more evidence that you're onto something, and you sort of your business kind of changes gradually over time until at some point it's more executional. Um, and then, of course, you have to sort of figure out how to be information gathering again. And part of the reason these principles are so valuable to fully understand is that it lets you operate carefully as you're moving along that spectrum. And it lets you sort of help your teams figure out how to operate at these sort of different points uh, along the path. OK. So now I want to talk about information in time. 
Um, and so here I want to talk about rates of change. Um, so one way to think about rates of change is like speed, you know, or like a car, velocity is measured in high school physics, say, in, in, in meters per second. Um, or a car uh, has a speed that's in miles per hour, right? Miles divided by hour. And one way to look at that is in terms of the units. So, or, or meters is a measure of distance. Seconds are a measure of time. So when I want to say that is velocity is a measure of distance over time, distance per time, right? Okay. Revenue, something that companies really care very deeply about, could be measured in dollars per month or dollars per year or whatever, right? Which is therefore a measure of money over time. How much money are you making in a, in a given unit of time? And revenue is very, very important. So profits are the key, but revenue is key. But I've just said is that you really want to think about information as money. At a startup, when you're in a search, information is the primary form of money. Like that's how you're actually making money, getting more value for your startup, um, is by getting the, more, the most important information. So therefore, the revenue is really best thought of as information over time. So what I'm trying to say here is that the thing you're kind of trying to sort of make your whole company function, the way you're kind of make your company sort of make more money, is more quickly gather information, right? And not just in some vague sense, but sort of valuable information. How fast can your team gather information? That's the sort of key thing you want to go after. And again, real money. Okay. Uh, and so now we get to the sort of putting a bunch of stuff together, and this risk information in time. This is sort of the point of the talk, to be honest. This, like, this is, these ideas sort of all fit in a certain way, and I wanted to kind of get here. Uh, and so this is also what, the part where I think it's fun. And I'm going to tell this one almost purely in a story. So uh, but let's go back to our health IT thing. You built this, you've got this demo thing, and you've got this, this CRUD app you're building for uh, someone for hospitals. And I want to say, instead of just being a CRUD app, I'm going to adjust it slightly, the story, and imagine that there's a public data source that you're using in, in addition to the CRUD app, something that like Todd Park, who spoke last year, they, you know, they've put out on um, some data set about doctors, say, uh, and, you, and you're taking that data set and collecting it and doing something with it and then presenting it to the hospitals. Okay, so imagine that. Uh, and you've done the right thing. You've actually done a, like a, a demo based on that. You sold it to the hospitals, and in fact, they were willing to pay $10 million. You got one hospital to give you a check for $10 million or a contract, a promise for $10 million. Uh, and that's great. You did the right thing. So now your sales team is out there trying to repeat that and sell the second one, and you've got a bunch of engineers now building that thing. And I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a junior developer, someone on the team, bright guy, but young, but a guy or girl, uh, um, and that it's uh, well, some morning, it's a Thursday morning, and they're, they're, they, they were given the job of taking the demo app and turning it into a real production system, and they're working with this public data set, and they discover, to their surprise, that it's not as comprehensive as everyone thought it was. It worked well for the demo, but for the actual hospital, it's actually not going to work. The whole product that they've sold is actually not going to succeed the way they've done it. They have to do it some other way. Okay. In the moment after this person makes this discovery, the biggest risk for the startup has changed, right? The, big, the biggest risk is no longer can we repeat this sale. The biggest risk is can we actually build the thing that we promised in the first sale that we thought we could build, but we just discovered we were wrong, okay? So if the biggest risk has changed, the thing you should be doing to gather the most information has changed, because the, the way you gather the most information is by going after your biggest risk. And therefore, the thing that's going to get you the most information, and therefore, the most money has changed. And therefore, as long as the company is still doing what it was doing before that discovery was made, they're, they're, they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and one way to look at this is that in order for your company to move fast, the entire organization the thing that will limit them in how fast they can move and how fast they can make money is how fast they can respond to the changing nature of risk. Because it's, if, if sort of only by going after the biggest risk you make the most money and risks are changing all the time, the entire organization has to be able to sort of change direction. And this 
Really, nobody gets this. This is the competitive advantage I want to give you. If you can organize your company this way, it's a huge competitive advantage. I want you to think about the story I just told about the junior developer. I've been that junior developer. I've worked with them. Nine times out of 10, they have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They were told, collect this data, clean it up some, put it in here. We're already behind. Work late. Get it finished. Right? They, so they don't say to anybody, this isn't comprehensive data. They don't even know what it's for. Or if they do, somebody tells them to stop talking and get this thing done because they're already they're on deadline and they're behind and they promised a lot of stuff. Um, and then, you know, so there's these like, periods of weeks or months where everyone's working on the wrong thing because people aren't paying attention to the, sort of what reality is telling them about the changing nature of risk. This is why people work on stuff that loses them $8,000 a day is because they're not focusing on the things they need to. So in summary, in the presence of extreme uncertainty, you make money by extracting information from reality. The most valuable information is that which reduces uncertainty about the largest in a chain of risks. Uh, and to acquire information quickly, the entire team, the whole organization, must constantly adjust its understanding of risk. Um, now, there's actually turning these principles into practice is fascinating to me. This is something we HUD8 think about, work on a lot, and we work with our clients sometimes on this kind of thing. It's a, like, a very, very interesting question, and it's sort of non-trivial. How do you get an entire organization to work this way? But I'm actually not going to talk about that right now. I want to close with something else, which is what I think is the sort of most important thing to understand, the most important sort of barrier to getting these things to work, if you have, say, a group of human beings operating in conditions of extreme uncertainty, which is fear. Um, and fear is a profoundly important driver in how people behave in conditions of uncertainty. The story about, like, you know, one thing is the team will be very afraid of looking like they're not busy because they'll feel, it, people interpret that, and they will tell you this, that it looks like people don't care. Don't you know how important it is? Like, why are you not working long hours on the wrong thing? You know, like, that's, it, it's very, very powerful. Um, they will hurry. They will demonstrate to you how afraid they are by being kind of sloppy and moving fast. But there's the, the most important place that fear lurges, sort, of, uh, sort of lodges itself is in the heads of your CEO. And specifically, one of the things that I've seen this over and over again in startup CEOs is what I just described, uh, they have a lot of fear. And what I described a startup, understanding the current state of a startup as sort of a chain of risks, which then have little risks within them. Can we do this? And if we can do this, what about this other thing? And that requires this. And there's that sort of nature of that and, and whatever. Startup CEOs don't call that a chain of risks even to themselves. What they call it is their vision. They have this vision that all those things will be true, and in fact, they can't get out of bed in the morning sometimes without kind of ritually convincing themselves that the things that are most unlikely to be true are somehow going to work out and be true. Um, and what they will do, and startup CEOs tell me this, and when they do, I'm like, oh my god, I should do a whole presentation about how you're thinking wrong, um, is they say, like, I can't let the team know that this thing might not be true, because if, if, I, if I let them know that, they'll be demoralized. Oh my God, <laughs> like, like really, you're, what you're doing, if, if your team needs to go after the biggest risk to gather information, and you're preventing them from doing that because you want to pretend those risks don't exist, you're forcing your team to fail, and I promise you, you will blame them for not executing at the end of the day. So, um, so basically, like, don't do that. That's my message. Um, so one of the things I want to tell you is go change your organizations. Don't work this way. Get the whole organization sort of oriented around information and risk in this way. It's a huge advantage. Or as you may find. Start your own team. <laughs> Start your own organization if you have to. Um, so uh, that's my main talk for today. Um, we talk about sort of some of those principles on our blog, uh, and I'm always happy to talk more about this. So thank you. That is awesome. Thank you. OK, now you are in for a treat. Uh, let's just do a quick survey, a quick show of hands. Who here uses LinkedIn? 
Okay, that's all of you, so you have the opportunity now to thank the creator and founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, who's going to join me. Reid, come on out. <laughs> Sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. Where would you like to sit? It doesn't matter. Okay, we got a chance. Uh, Reid had me to LinkedIn a few months ago. He got to interview me. Now the tables are turned. <laughs> I'm very excited. Uh, so first of all, thank you very much for being here. Uh, Pleasure and really. honor. Uh, an honor to share your insights with, uh, with all of us. So I would like to start, if you don't mind, with a quote that is often wrongly attributed to me, <laughs> but that I believe is correctly attributed to you, and I'd like to really check that out, if you don't mind, which I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. It's that if you wait until you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, then you have waited too long. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, is that, first of all, is that correct? Yes. You, in fact, have said that? I have correctly. Indeed. Okay, good. I'm yes. going to continue to attribute it to you. <laughs> yes. What does it mean? So um, the key thing when you're trying to crystallize a piece of advice in order to get people to think crisply is to get something that really sticks and is focused. And so in this one, the key thing comes down to is that the normal instinct for most entrepreneurs is to say, I'm going to be judged by my product. And so what I want to do is I want to do it kind of like the unveiling. For example, we had a car manufacturer in here earlier. Yeah. Like a car, like, ta-da, this is the thing we're shipping. And you, you rate me based <laughs> upon your first blush judgment of like the opening night of the movie. And of course, the whole world is going to do it yes. the first day. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of things that in traditional lower, uh, slower cycle industries, like you, know, you only have your first impression to make brand and everything else, which all reinforces this. And so, by the way, this quote only applies to software, and particularly <laughs> consumer internet software. I've had people go, oh, that's what I should do with hardware. And you're like, not so much. <laughs> right? um, and so the idea was to say, how do you get the internal temperature to know, are you moving fast enough? Because it's, it's the, the, the actual emphasis of the quote is speed. And also getting customer feedback, and obviously ties. This is the reason why I, I'm of not course. surprised that people attribute it to you in terms of lean methodology. Uh, and, uh, and part of it is, is to break yourself of this tendency to say, it's got to be great when I launch it for a consumer internet thing so that everyone loves me. Right? Because the real question is not what happens on the first day. The real question is what happens in the first month, the first six months, the first year. And you're optimizing for success at the first year, not at the first day. And for anyone other than you know, maybe Steve Jobs or a few other people in the world who go, look, I am a perfect you know, dousing rod person for knowing exactly what, what should happen here. Getting that, getting up fast and getting that feedback and iterating is key. So, so I have been uh, also advertising, as we talked about last time, what I consider the secret corollary to Reed's theorem, mm -hmm. uh, which I also want to check out with you, which is that what I've worked with a lot of teams, they say, yeah, that, okay, that's all well and good, but there, there is a certain level of polish and we live in a mobile world and they have to be, there's a certain level of quality that is required, so we need to take longer to achieve this minimum level. And my, my new corollary I want to check out with you is, uh, no matter how long you wait to release your first version, you will be embarrassed by it. Yeah. Because undoubtedly, you know, like yes. all these internal view of quality that you have like, is probably not going to be right, and then you're going to be embarrassed. So if we're going to be embarrassed anyway, let's get it out of the way. Uh, I, I think that's... Can I get Ty Reed's endorsement for that? Yes, you have my endorsement yes. for that. But, but part of that is also is to really think about what the, I mean, you know, minimum viable product, to really think hard about what minimum is. Yeah. I mean, I, from very early days in LinkedIn, uh, my four co-founders grabbed me in a room and said, we cannot launch yet because we have to <laughs> launch this feature called Contact Finder because people won't know what to do with LinkedIn if we don't launch this feature. And I said, well, will the site work? I'm like, yes. Huh? Will people be able to send on invitations? Yes. Will they be able to search? Will they be able to communicate with people? Yes. We're launching. 
<laughs> and if it so happens to be the day that May 6th, because we launched May 5th, 2003, on May 6th, that's the feature we need. We'll start building that. <laughs> we haven't built it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but any day now, I'm sure yes. it'll be absolutely essential. Yes. Um, so, so I don't think it's really given, first of all, everyone here considers LinkedIn to be obviously a core thing we couldn't live without. And obviously everybody always felt that way, even <laughs> 10 years ago, of course, it was obvious. That, mm -hmm. And therefore, it's hard for us to really imagine that there was ever a time when you had to debate with your co-founders about what features should be in or not, because now we consider it like just a core utility. So can you take us back to that meeting and to that time and talk about like, how did you figure out what should be in or not, and how, what did you think made the, that initial MVP viable? Well, so the key thing, I mean, here, LinkedIn has a, a network properties, right. networks and marketplaces actually have very weird MVPs because you also need to have critical mass. Right. So the key thing that we were trying, the, the key problem that we were trying to solve in the very early days of LinkedIn is how do we get to a million people in the network? Because all of the features that we in, in, uh, envision being useful for when users would go, hey, it's awesome, I love this, this is something I want to use, require a million people in the network. So you have this challenge of how to zero, how first member, second member, third <laughs> right. member, value all value, get. I mean, zero value. So part of the strategy was we knew that there would be a subset of people who would say, look, I get this intellectually, I'm curious, and I'll experiment with it, I'll invite some people, and that that subgroup being active would get us to a million. And everyone else, we were just trying to get them not to hate it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it was like, huh, this is curious, hmm, okay, and I'll go away, and then we'd try to get them to come back when we started having more people and more in, in a larger network that could then serve their, their needs and utilities. And so part of that, uh, what was key on that piece of the debate was, could we start building up the network where people could look around and get something of the promise of it, and some subset of those people would send out invitations. Right. That was literally strategy from day one, and the absolute minimum viable thing. Now the thing that, part of the reason when we launched, we started, because we, uh, I think we created the, the, kind of the framework of early consumer internet strategy of growth, engagement, and revenue in terms of a, of, a, of a strategic framework. When we started doing revenue, we chose job listings first, not because we thought it was going to be our central revenue stream, because it would begin to show people use cases, uh -huh. right? Where everyone says, oh, I see how I could use that. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that would be useful because there were a lot of people, like for example, uh, sorry, let me riff on one thing. Most people uh, say, uh, think that, oh, I know that I live in a networked world, right? And I, and, yeah, and I behave well, obviously, rationally. I, I, I certainly know that, yeah. Yes. Then the next question is, is what, and you I know the answer to this, but what's <laughs> your strategy for being found? Because if you believe that you're in a networked world, you are one, one person who's an active node in the network, and there is hundreds of millions of other people where some subset of those hundred million, let's say 100,000, are looking for you in the right kind of thing. And what do you do in order to be found by them? And if you don't actually really understand what you're, like, like being in a network world, unless you have a be found strategy as well. And still, by the way, there's a vast majority of people on LinkedIn who don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, so I, I wanna ask you about that, and I, and I know how that ties into things that you've done later, but actually you, you blew right past the concept that I think people here will find very valuable, the, the strategy of growth engagement revenue, and especially how that applies in a marketplace business, because I meet with a lot of startups, as you do, yes. that are trying to do something like that, two-sided network, network effects business, and they yep. use critical mass as the excuse to never do anything. Yes. It's like, well, I, I can't possibly fail because I don't need to have critical mass. Once I have critical mass, yes. then everything will be great. I have no strategy to get from here to there, therefore yes. I don't have to do anything. Yes. Which I do not, by the way, think is a winning strategy. So walk us through yeah, like how you think about this framework and, and how folks could apply it. Well, so, um, so the key thing when you're thinking about, uh, I frequently discuss these as human ecosystems, but networks, 
uh, marketplaces, and some, there's variants that are sometimes also platforms, is you, if you don't have a critical mass, you're dead. Right? And the marketplace is obviously buyers and sellers and so forth. And so in effect, your strategy, like one of the things actually, by the way, I architect in terms of layers of strategy for startups, financing, product distribution, then product, mm -hmm. right? So you, if you run out of money, you're dead. If you don't get your distribution right, you're dead. And by the way, when you're thinking about your product is, if you're not thinking about your product distribution as part of what you're thinking about your product, you're also usually dead when it comes to, <laughs> especially networks and marketplaces. Certainly. So you have to have a sense of what that is. And by the way, the reason you divide it out is because sometimes there's something specific or unique about growth that is only a growth feature. It is an engagement feature. It isn't someone who goes, oh, I love that site because of X. It's something that actually makes it example. grow. Um, well, uh, so for example, uh, one of the things that was the difference between life and death for uh, LinkedIn is we uh, started a quote-unquote address book, which by the way, we're now really working on and <laughs> you can see it with LinkedIn contacts and everything else. But 10 years later. But it, yes, 10 years later. In 2003, the LinkedIn address book was, upload your address book and we'll show you who else is here. That's it. It's not really a usable address book. We called it an address book, but like I didn't use it as an address book, right? <laughs> it just happened to be a, a, a quick proxy for showing me who else is here, because one of the things we figured out, and we were the first people who did this, was that in growing a network, one of the key things, when someone shows up and the very first time they come there, their actual usual first question is, who else is here? Right? And so if some percentage of them, the easiest way to discover that was to upload theirs. Well, oh, Eric's here. Oh, well, connect with Eric. Right. And all of a sudden, that started creating connectivity within the network. That's, at, at in 2003, it was entirely a growth feature. I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I cannot tell you the number of times that I had conversations, speaking of embarrassment, yeah. with my co-founders and people on the team going, this is embarrassing. This isn't an address book. <laughs> right? this is, you can't use this. And it's like, yeah, it's a growth feature right now. Yes, we have a plan to build it as an engagement feature, but right now it's a growth feature. And so you need to have that if you're doing networks or marketplaces. And by the way, in each of these cases, almost all of the strategies for how you get to critical mass are sui generis, right? Like e.g., each startup has its unique. It's not like, give me the marketplace playbook, that's what I do. Right. If it were that easy, there'd be lots more, <laughs> right? Same thing with networks. It, it, it's something about like, for example, uh, in PayPal, this is actually, PayPal was the one that taught me this in depth because uh, part of what uh, Luke Nozick and Peter and Max came up with is they said, oh, we're a payments network. So what we should do is we should give out free money such that I give you money to come here because that's related to what we're doing. Right. It's here is money because I'm paying you money in or order to join. using the product in you, order to do the viral growth. Yes, exactly. And that was like super clever, right? <laughs> and I was like, ah, this is the general rule of that. Yeah, so, and a lot of people are trying to apply that to products where it's not a payments product and they're just paying people to use the product and that's just a formula for setting a lot of money on fire pretty quickly. Yes, especially when it has nothing to do with what your product is. If it has some relationship, maybe there's a strategy that works right. there. So I love your metaphor of ecosystem design rather than just product design or company building and I have found that enormously helpful to think of the founder as like cultivating an ecosystem among the various partners and stakeholders, whether that's you know, customers or advertisers or whatever partnerships you need to make yeah. it work. And I was just thinking about about your, your comment about how each growth strategy is sui generis, it's almost like uh, we're developing herd immunity to these viral growth strategies. Yes. So they actually can't work over and over again kind of by design. That's exactly right. right. I mean, almost every viral design actually, I mean, the funny thing is when you look at virality, a lot of people say, oh yeah, I get it. It's like, you know, it's like Hotmail, it's like PayPal, et cetera. And you're like, no, actually, it's much more like epidemiology than you think. A lot of right. the mathematics and epidemiology applies. So if you're curious about the mathematics, go read the epidemiology literature. The second thing is, is people get antibodies. So for example, we were the first one to come up with, upload your address book and see else you know is here. Now everyone does this. 
Now, how many people upload their address books to do that? Very few, right. because they're like, oh, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> right. right, I fell or, for that once. Yeah, <laughs> right. And you know, you, you have, by the way, you have to preserve trust and all the rest of it. It's really, really critical, I think, for the long term. But, uh, but part of the reason for these things being unique strategies, you have to figure out something that people go, oh, that's interesting, that's new, there's some trigger for me doing that. And people mm -hmm. frequently are like, oh yeah, upload my address. Like, oh yeah, yeah, tell all my Facebook friends. You know, how many times have you heard that? Yeah, right. And how <laughs> eager are you to really yes. tell your Facebook friends? Yes, yeah. very limited circumstances now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, so, so it's interesting that you talk about, well, first of all, I want to check, I have so many things I want to ask mm -hmm. you, okay. One thing is I feel like people confuse virality with word of mouth. Yes. Uh, you know, every good product has word of mouth because yes. people like to brag about it. But yes. that does not meet the epidemiological criteria for viral growth. That's right. My feeling is viral growth happens only when uh, someone else being drawn into the product is a necessary side effect of just using the product. Whereas yes. viral growth is kind of optional. So like, you know, Ebola's yeah. ravaging your town. You can't be like, oh, I opt out. Yep. Not interested. No thanks. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not how it works. Yeah. Well, there's actually two forms of virality. One of them is the actual engagement, and sometimes it's just growth features. Right. right like the, the, the address book wasn't an engagement feature, it was a growth feature. Right. But, it, but it, it's a consequence of yes. people using LinkedIn. Yes. And you're like, oh, I want to have my address book on yes. here. Boom. Then those things, exactly. those things follow. So given that, and given that each growth strategy is kind of sui generis, hmm. I, I don't know. It would have been easy for me to think that, therefore, it would be impossible to invest in these things because mm. each one is fundamentally different. And I see a lot of investors who basically their thesis is, well, I did this thing very successfully. I'll find other people copying me and I'll invest in them. And yet you've been able to make the transition from being a founder to really one of Silicon Valley's most successful investors. And, and what's interesting to me is so many of the companies you've invested in uh, have followed a similar like growth, I guess I'll use this framework now, growth engagement revenue mm -hmm. framework, even though the specific tactics they use were totally different, like you know, something like Zynga's, totally unrelated to what, or seemed from the outside, very unrelated yep. to LinkedIn. Yep. So square that circle for me. So there's a couple things. So one is, um, the reason you break out growth specifically is because in almost all of these things, a critical mass is necessary for actual viable products, <laughs> right? And so solving that problem is critical. Uh, the patterns by which people say, I am going to now go engage my friends or I'm going to bring in a group of people in some way, those patterns can be very idiosyncratic <laughs> and different. The engagement side is now I'm beginning to actually use the value proposition. And most of these things, uh, the models have some version of freemium, which are extremely important. And so the, the free value proposition, like I have yet to see anything that is, that is viral that isn't free or have a substantially right. free component. Sure, because the is, payment would slow down the yes, viral loop. Exactly. I, uh, uh, mathematically, it's possible. <laughs> I've just never seen it. <laughs> right? And it may be you know, kind of pragmatically impossible. And then the last thing is, is normally, in terms of these systems, is because the, the, um, the network or marketplace is made more valuable by the wider range of folks who are engaged, a substantially kind of free engagement thing is, is, is important. But then that means that your monetization always is a sub, sub, subset, right? right. And, so, um, and so that's the reason why that pattern. Now, sometimes, by the way, it's really awesome when your growth and engagement are closely tied together. And you say, well, I don't really have to focus on three phases. I only really have to focus on two. Or uh, in a marketplace where it's like, look, it's all paid transactions, frequently the growth is a little bit harder. But then once it's going, the business is a lot easier. Right. right? So that sometimes there's different weightings in terms of how those play. And if you have a great monetization engine, then frequently, like for example, you know, frequently people talk about V or K factors. And if you have a V or K factor that's lower than one, it's actually still a useful thing in a business. Because, for example, if it's 0.5, that means every customer brings in two more. So you, you have a third of your customer acquisition cost. Yeah. 
which then means that actually your paid acquisition strategy suddenly has wider opportunities in terms of yeah, how you're doing it. They interact. So that's, uh, but that's the, that's the reason why it's useful to have the three buckets, although it doesn't always mean it's formulaic. Bucket right. one, bucket right. two, bucket three. Yeah, I've been trying to convince people that sustainable growth happens when new customers come from the actions of past customers. Mm -hmm. And rather than from some kind of external or one-off event that you can't keep repeating, because as the size of yes. the base grows, the only thing that is proportional to the size of the base is the base itself. Yes. Uh, and therefore, there's kind of three ways that can happen, what we call a paid, sticky, and viral engines of growth. Mm -hmm. So right, you can you use marginal, positive yeah. marginal cost of acquisition, uh, high engagement businesses, and viral businesses. And the pattern I've noticed, and I'm curious if you see this too, uh, is that companies really specialize in one of those three engines of growth at a time. That the companies yes. that are really good at paid engage, like paid acquisition, you know, yes. they're not, they're really quite clumsy when they try yes. to be viral and the companies that have super long retention, they're terrible at like TV advertising or brand advertising because yes. they never really needed to. Uh, and I think there's kind of a simple organizational competence reason, which is part of what happens is, you know, to use lean discussions, you're running a bunch of experiments. The experiments which have the highest yield and repetitively weren't, the rational thing to do is to put money more resources, yeah, of course. become much more specialized than that. And so therefore... That's where the ROI is. Yes, that's where the ROI is. So therefore the management team is focused on there. Therefore the, the key people in the company are going, this is the thing that we do in order to get more of. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I frequently wondered if, if that, you know, how you identify intelligently local maxima because uh -huh. you get into a culture and an ideology around that. And you say, well, actually now is the time to actually go try, like for example, I mean, I've thought about this in the LinkedIn case, we've done no television ever. It's like, well, should we do television some year? Right. Oh, I don't know, I, I'm not even sure how to fully evaluate that. Um, we'll probably run experiments. I, I look forward to seeing it. I'm, yes. I'm thinking about like when World of Warcraft did television ads, and yes. like they were horrible, but yes. they didn't matter because it's a high engagement product. Exactly. Um, one of the themes we've been talking about today is uh, not just getting companies started, but how to have a philosophy of long-term thinking and how to build an organization that's going to last. Mm -hmm. you know, you've now scaled LinkedIn from you know four co-founders to I don't know how big how big is it now. Uh, nearly four thousand people. Yeah, so that's pretty different. Yes. Um, I'm really curious about what are the things that you feel like you needed to put in place in the early days that really set you up for uh, building an organization that you could be proud of, and what are the things you kind of wish you had done earlier, but maybe didn't see uh, at the time. These are great questions, and we don't have full time for them, but... <laughs> <clears throat> so the key thing is, um, it, uh, in almost all, there's a whole bunch of things that you are in massive learning curves. So you want to have a learning organization. Uh, one of the things I think is frequently under-commented on the lean methodology is how it actually also binds a team together, right? So they go, oh yes, de-risking and all the rest. Yes, that's important. Yeah. But also the cohesion on the team and how do you keep the team cohesive is actually, I think, under-commented in terms of how important that is. Yeah. So you want to have a, lean, uh, um, a, a learning culture in terms of what you're doing, and you want to have so, a combination, and I frequently describe this as flexible persistence, where you have a yep. vision that you're really tied to, but you are constantly questioning and thinking about what you're doing to, to get uh, there, to, to shift around. Um, the things that, um, you know, I mean, this is something that we always wish we'd do better, and it's always hard because there's a limited number of hours in the day, is a lot of uh, recruiting, when you're recruiting people into the company, is a long game. Like, one of the things that you end up doing is you end up, you should constantly be talking to great people, even not just as the who applies to a job mm -hmm. listing or whatever, but with the idea of a long term of recruiting them into the company. And one of the things that if I were to go back and tell myself 2002, 2003, what I should have spent more time doing 
was essentially say, take 10% of my schedule or 20% of my schedule and just shift it to that. Mm -hmm. Not under the, oh, I'm hiring for, you know, DBA and I'm, <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm thinking, level like, five. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just, well, at those stages, it wasn't level anything. <laughs> right. It was, you know, a DBA. <laughs> right. Anybody at all. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and then be focused on some of the long game because recruiting is almost always, for great talent, is almost always long game. Mm -hmm. And start playing that reasonably easy. And, 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 and the reason I don't say like 50% of your time is because classically in startups is if I don't hit these, I don't make these experiments work, I don't hit these milestones in a year, I'm dead. So planning a three-year strategy <laughs> right. in detail in your first year is frequently it's a insane. misallocation of time and, you know, yeah. time and thinking. On the other hand, Presume some, you got, always have to presume some success, in which case, if you're presuming some success, the recruiting game is a long game. Yeah, because you got to sustain that pace of learning over a long time. Yes. All right, we're, we're almost out of time, but i got to ask you one last question. So many people in this room, myself included, we all want to be the next Reed Hoffman. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? So do I. Yeah. <laughs> so just one last piece of advice for us to, who, who seek to follow in your footsteps. Oh, uh, that's, that's the question. Um, <laughs> or you could just say thank you. No, I'm <laughs> no, I, I will in a moment. But, uh, <clears throat> I guess the key thing is um, part of because with the consumer internet, um, uh, it's been so amazing that we've had amazing young founders and how much younger the kind of average age of successful founders has come down, especially in the consumer internet. It's different in the enterprise, other sorts of things. Um, is, is, is actually to really think about these as long games. Because actually a surprising number of the Web 2.0 companies um, you know, myself with LinkedIn, Pincus with Zynga, et cetera, are actually repeat founders. And so be thinking about this game, yes, you're all in for the first game, but be thinking about this game as probably a multiple game strategy. I mean, so for example, when I started my first company, SocialNet, I had that mindset, which was, look, I'm gonna try as hard as I can to make this work, but I'm gonna be thinking a lot about also what does the long game look like, because in any startup, no matter who you are, there is a substantially less than 50% chance of, of, of succeeding. That's very optimistic. <laughs> yeah, so, well, substantially less. It might be 30, it might be five, it might be one. <laughs> it's low. So given that, in your own startup and what you're doing, be thinking about how it is you're playing the long game yourself. So for example, the relationships that you're building with people around you for when you're financing your second company or having them help you in a second company, pay attention to that. Build those for real be generous and be building alliances, like trading insight and information with them as well. Because the greater than 50% chance is that as an entrepreneur, you're going to be doing a second startup. And you want to be well set up for that, even though you're putting in 100 hours a week. And it can't possibly fail, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, and it can't possibly fail. You know, and this is actually one of the classic things on entrepreneurship is you have to both be presuming that, that this thing's going to work, and that you're playing the long game. And on holding these duality, flexible persistence, holding these yep. dualities in mind is key to succeeding. Reed, such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so Thank much. You. Appreciate it. Yes. And good luck. <laughs>